Good morning. Whoa. Hey, we're live. Now that you're all awake, uh, thank you so much for being here this morning. We're excited that all of you are here. We know it's summertime, and with summertime, how many of you guys take road trips as a family during the summertime? How many of you remember taking road trips as a kid? as a family, right? So there's two things that I think usually happen when you take a road trip as a family, at least my experience from being a kid, two things. The first thing is at some point you feel like strangling everybody in the car. Uh, And the second thing is you play games, right? You're trying to pass time. You got 16 hours to get to wherever you're going. So you're trying to kill time. And one of the games, tell me if you've ever played this, how many of you have ever played the license plate game? We try to see how many license plate you can see from other states. Now around here, central Texas, we don't see a whole lot of license plates from other areas, but you get out on the road and you start to see all these different license plates. Now let's see how good you are. See who can tell me the state who at the bottom of their license plate, it says the show me state. What state is that? Missouri. Missouri. Does anybody know how it got its name? All right, good. Good, you're going to learn something this morning. So, Missouri got its name, the Show Me State, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They had a state of representative named Willard Van Diver, and he was speaking in Philadelphia at a ball for the Navy. And he got up and he said, I come from a state where we raise corn and cotton and Democrats. And frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri, and you have got to show me. He says, he says, stop telling me and stop preaching at me. Stop, stop lecturing me and show me. We are going to be entering in this morning. We're starting in the book of Titus, a brand new series. And we're going to be up to our eyeballs in a book that is all about show me. It's going to be all about show me. And Paul is writing this letter to who? Titus, right? He's writing to Titus, and he's going to say, look, Titus, you're on this island called Crete, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks, and he says, I I left you there to put some things in place, to do some things that I I couldn't take care of before I had to leave, and he says, what I want you to be about, what I want this church on the island of Crete to be about, Titus, I want them to be about show me. I want them to be about show me. Let's look at a couple passages. First, let's look at chapter 1. Jump down to verse 16. All right, and you're going to have to help me out. You guys are doing great so far. You're talking in church. I love it. You can talk in church, okay? Uh, He says this, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, disqualified for any good, any good work. Skip down to chapter two, verse seven. Let's see what he says here. He says, in everything, make yourself an example of what? Good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Skip down to verse 14, same chapter, chapter 2. He says, he gave, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his possession, eager to do good works. Chapter 3, are you guys picking up on a theme here? Anybody have a theme? Chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. And lastly, verse 14, chapter 3, and our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works. You have a theme? Anybody have a theme? Anybody find Waldo? Waldo? 
right? You know what we're going to be talking about the next few weeks as we go through this? It's good works. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, Titus, what I want you in this church in Crete to understand is that the good news of the gospel travels on the backs of good works. The good news of the gospel travels on the back of good works. And here's what happens when a church gets this, when a church understands this, and they go, oh, grasshopper, I finally understand. They get it. And this is what happens. See, what happens is you begin to go out and you do good works. You do things like we did on Serve Sunday, and you serve these families. And all of a sudden, the people that you're serving in your good works, they see your good works, and now they experience goodwill. All of a sudden, I have this goodwill towards you that allows me to now hear the good news of the gospel from you. And this is a very real thing. In fact, uh, this past week, our associate pastor, Stephen, last, last, or two Sundays ago, we served one of his elderly neighbors in Serve Sunday. And he invited her over just to make sure there wasn't anything else that he and his family could do for her. And they're having lunch And she's been served by the church. She's experienced some good works. She comes over for lunch. It's right there at the lunch table. She puts her trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Can we celebrate that this morning? Amen? That's a good thing. And it started, it started with her experiencing good works, which brought about goodwill, which opened the door for the good news. This is something very real. So let's Let's understand, when we say at River Rock Bible Church, our mission is to go into our community and allow every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. When we talk about people seeing the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ, that means our good works. Our good works that we do towards one another and our good works that we do as we reach out to them and we serve them in the name of Jesus Christ. And they say, why are you here? Why are you doing this? It's because we love Jesus, that's why. It's because we love Jesus, and we want you to love Jesus too. We want you to know him through faith. That's why we're here. And so as we jump into this book of Titus in chapter 1, I'll give you a little bit of background. Paul is writing this uh, from the city of Corinth. It's around 63 AD, and he's, he, this is about three to five years before Paul will be in Rome, not by his own choice, but he's been arrested. He's now in Rome, and according to tradition, in the noonday sun, that sword is going to come slicing down and separate his head from his body. He's in the twilight years of his ministry, and by all accounts, we think that he knows that the end is coming soon. And so he writes this letter to Titus and says, Titus, I want you to put some things in place before, uh, before I go. I want you to know what it is that you're supposed to do on this island called Crete with this church that, that we've put together here, that God has established in the name of the gospel. And so we're going to see in the first four verses. Now what you have to know about Titus is this. I, when I initially planned this series, I planned for three weeks. We were going to go one chapter a week and we we're just going to hit the highlights. But as I dug into it, I was like, there's no way we can get through all this good stuff in three weeks. So we're actually going to take nine weeks to go through the book of Titus. It's exciting. And this morning, we're only going to get through the first four verses. All right? First four verses. These verses are the introduction, the salutation, the greeting. And most people, usually when you're reading, you're like, ha, to Titus, yep, in the name of Jesus, got it, good. And now I'm going to get to the meat. But we're going to see that Paul's going to give us five C's. Uh, deep theological C's here, and you're saying, five C's? That sounds like my high school report card. But he's going to give us five C's, and we're going to use the letter C just because it's going to help us remember, and he's going to start by giving us his credentials. And he says this, Paul, 
a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now we're going to stop there. Paul here is laying out his credentials. Now, a number of years ago, I was sitting down with my good friend, Billy Graham, and Billy Graham said this. He said, whenever you're in a conversation, don't ever name drop. And so I promised my good friend, Billy Graham, that I would never name drop in any of my sermons. Uh, I always try to obey what Billy Graham tells me to do. So I promise not to name drop. And, and, but Paul does a massive name drop here. He says, look, you've got to understand that, that when you speak to the church, you better speak on behalf of the king. You better not speak your own words, you speak God's words, which is why every Sunday morning that you come to River Rock Bible Church, we will open the Bible, and you won't hear Charlie's words, you'll hear God's word from his word every Sunday. And so Paul is laying out his credentials, and he says, you want to know who I am? You want to know what gives me authority to speak? He says, "Uh, really, I'm nobody, I'm just a slave. I'm a slave, a a slave of God. I'm a slave of God. He uses the term slave. The word in the original language there is doulos. And it means slave. And I realize that in today's culture, that idea of slavery doesn't have a positive connotation. But remember what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that you were bought with a price? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Well, what does that mean? You're a slave and you're bought at a price. What that means is this. When Jesus says jump, we say, how high? And some of you can't wrap your, your mind around that because you've always been told that Jesus is your best friend and he's supposed to be your best friend. And now the scripture's saying that I'm his slave. That because he paid for me in his own blood, that he bought me, that I'm his slave. So how does that work? Well, we believe that when Jesus said, When God said, let there be light, and light came rolling off his tongue at 187,000 miles per second, that the one who created us, who gives us life, who sustains our life, that he has the right to say, I'm the king and you're the slave. That he has that right. So we are his slave and we do exactly what he calls us to do. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been bought. You are his slave. You are his slave, but it, it gets better. He goes on and he says this, He says, I'm a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle that's used there is apostello, and it means commissioned by the king. It means one who has been sent, who's been commissioned by the king. So Paul is saying, you want my credentials? Here's my credentials. I'm a sent slave. You can write that in your bulletin. Write that down. I am a sent slave. Now, Paul had a special calling as an apostle. He's he's reminding us that... I do what the word of the Lord tells me to do. I've been sent by God. I've been commissioned by the king with a special message that he's given me. And so I do exactly what he does, tells me to do because I'm also his slave. I am a sent slave. And some of you tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to say, oh, it's Monday. But no, it's not Monday. It's Monday. Because you're a sent slave. You are someone who's been bought by Jesus Christ, by his precious blood. And you have a job to do. You have a message to carry into your workplace, into your schools, wherever you go. It's Monday. You have a purpose. God is sending you. Because here's the reality. Although our calling is not the same as Paul's, every single one of us, if we look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we realize that we too, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been commissioned. We've been bought by his blood, 
therefore we're his slave. But we've also been given a commission to take the good news of Jesus Christ into the world wherever we are. So the first thing we have to understand are the credentials. The second thing Paul wants us to see is this, that we've been chosen. He's going to give us the reason. He says, okay, why am I sent? Why am I obeying? What we have to understand is that, that in life, God is not calling us. God doesn't ask us to call an audible. Does everybody know what that is, football players? Right? You get to the line of scrimmage. You see something you don't like. You call your own play. God never wants us to call an audible. What God desires of us as sent slaves is radical, rigorous obedience to his word. And so Paul's going to tell us this. He says, Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up what? What does it say? To build up a faith? The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul is saying this. He's saying, look, not, not only uh, do I have credentials, but I'm also chosen. I'm chosen. And we see that in his use of the word elect. And he says, to build up the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, now, Paul is very specific here. He doesn't say a faith. He doesn't say, hey, this is a good thing that we've got going over here in the Middle East. You guys should all try it. It's a faith. No, he says the faith. When Jesus came, he didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And as Christians, we believe that when Jesus says that there is no way to get to heaven except through him, we believe that that is true. And some people out there would say, well, that's extremely narrow. You Christians are extremely narrow. Well, yes, we are, because it's the truth. See, we live in a day and age where there's, there is no truth. Truth is relative, but Jesus is very clear, very clear that there is one way, one truth, and one life, and that's through him. And he says this, to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Anyone in here in favor of becoming godly? Godliness? Good. Good. A couple of you, you're in church. Good. All right. We're in favor of godliness. Well, what is it? Who is it that's led to godliness? God's elect. God's elect. Paul is saying, not only am I sent by the king, I've also been chosen by the king. And I know that there's a lot of talk out there. There's a lot of different views on what it means to be elect and man's free will and how does that work. But, but let's understand this. When scripture uses the term elect, what it's talking about is that it's talking about uh, being a gift of meaning. You guys know what a gift of meaning is, right? How many of you like random gifts versus a gift of meaning? Right? We all know Mother's Day comes around, you forgot it's Mother's Day, you forgot it's your anniversary, you run to the, the stop and shop, and you grab whatever's on the, the shelf, and you give your wife a funnel uh, for an oil change, right? Because you have a random gift because you forgot, you didn't get her a gift of meaning. Well, when I was in Cub Scouts, I was six years old, I remember coming home, we'd made this special gift from, my, from our moms, and uh, I gave my mom this, this little Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, and I, actually, my parents just took this picture. You can see it's in really good condition. I gave this to her 28 years ago. It survived a number of moves, um, a number of cleaning out of Christmas decorations, but she still has it to this day. She's threatened to give it to me, but she still has it this day. Why? Because it's a gift of meaning. You know what you are? If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ... 
Scripture says that you are a gift of meaning, that God didn't just randomly sit down and say, oh, no, I've got to choose two billion people. Uh, Okay, give me this one, this one, this one. No, he sat down and he chose you. This is mind-altering to me, that before the foundations of the earth, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we sang about in that very first song sat down and one of them spoke and said, I choose Charlie Turner. I choose Bethany Dean. I choose Doug Brown. And when you realize that, you understand. To me, it changes the whole way that I think about everything that I do, that not only am I sent by God, not only only am I his slave, but I've been chosen by him as a gift of meaning, that he's chosen me. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. It says this, For he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and his will. So we see that he chose us, he elected us, he chooses us. And some people say, well, that's not fair. And you're right, it's absolutely not fair that he chooses us. Because if it was up to me, I wouldn't choose any of you. If I was a holy, righteous God, And I were looking at the people that are around this room, and myself included, I wouldn't choose any of us. But God in his justice has mercy, and he provides a way through his son, Jesus Christ, that we can be chosen. We can be chosen. Now, I know some of you are are hearing this, and you're thinking, you know, when I was in eighth grade sitting in Third Baptist Church in that little town, uh, it really felt like I chose God, like my free will acted and I chose God. Let me me tell you this. when you study scripture, it becomes very clear that yes, God has chosen us. But it's also clear to me through scripture that we've also been chosen by God. And what, what Paul is saying here to Titus is, Titus, I want you to understand that God is sovereign. That everything that happens in this world happens under God's sovereignty. And here's the thing is that we believe that our free will operates under God's sovereignty. Our free will operates under God's sovereignty. And if anyone ever comes to you and says, I've got 16 points to explain to you how this works out perfectly, run. Run from them as fast as you can because they're claiming that they have the mind of God. We don't understand how it works. I'm not a determinist, but I am determined to understand that my free will operates under God's sovereignty. I don't understand how it works. I don't think we'll ever understand. Anybody ever have a brain freeze? You eat ice cream too fast and, ah, my head hurts. That's kind of the way I feel every time I try to think about it and try to understand how it works. I just can't comprehend it, and I don't think I ever will. But I trust that somehow my free will operates under God's sovereignty. Paul uses another word here. He says says that they've been predestined. That word predestined simply means marked out beforehand. Anybody watch baseball? I love baseball. Big Houston Astros fan. Uh, they've moved out of last place, so they're no longer the Lastros. Uh, but they, are, they aren't doing so hot this year. Still love them. They're still my team. But what I love about baseball, I love getting there early, and I love watching the grounds crew set up the field. And what they do before they, they play the game, you'll see somebody with that little machine that's dropping the chalk line. What are they doing? They're marking out the field beforehand. It's the same idea that God has marked us out beforehand. God has chosen us. God has given us, uh, called us, and chosen us to be 
his children. And here's the thing. God is sovereign. This is the big idea that, that Paul is trying to get across to Titus, that God is sovereign and nothing happens without his knowledge, without him already knowing. God is never informed. He only knows. Amen? He is never informed. He only knows. He knows what's going to happen. And I know some of us right now, we're watching the news and we're thinking, oh, what's going to happen in November? I don't know what's going to happen in November. We're so worried about what's going to happen in November. Well, guess what? According to 2 Timothy, God already knows what's going to happen in November. And it doesn't matter what happens in November because God's still in control. He allows certain people to be elected. He puts leaders in place according to Scripture. And so we as Christians, we ought to be the most hopeful people in the world. Instead of walking around and, oh, if they get elected, then it's going to be the end of the world. No. We ought to be hopeful. Our theology has to match our emotions. We can't walk around, oh, it's the end of the earth. Oh, no, Jesus is coming back. Great. Oh, no, it's going to be the end times. Things are going to get really bad. And then Jesus is going to come. Well, good. We should all long for that day when Jesus comes back because we understand that God is in control. And as we walk around, as we look at things, uh, look, I get it. I'm not excited. I'm going to have to hold my nose again and probably vote for someone that I don't really want to. I get that. I understand. But God is in control and we trust him. We trust that he is sovereign and we trust that he has a plan. And whatever that plan is, we will remain faithful and we will live in the knowledge that we have been chosen for a purpose. Paul says we are God's elect, God's elect, let's go back to Titus, um, for God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to what? To godliness. It leads to godliness. Paul is saying to Titus, hey, remember, we're part of God's elect, God is sovereign, but he elected us for a purpose. Uh, one of the questions I often get from people is, well, what is God's plan for my life? What is God's plans for my life? Let's look at Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29. Do we have it up there? Romans 8.29 says that God's plan for your life is to conform you to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Conform you to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. There's been a number of studies that prove that Couples who've been married for a long period of time begin to look like one another. Anybody ever notice that? That's why when people have been married 60, 70 years, you're like, which one's the guy? I don't know. I can't tell a difference. (laughs) People begin to look like one another. And the same is true for us. When we walk with Jesus Christ, we get in his word every single day. We spend time on our knees in prayer. We spend time fellowshipping with the body of Jesus Christ. And we commit ourselves to following him. And we're in relationship with him. Guess what? In 50 years, I'm going to look a lot more like Jesus Christ than I do like Charlie Turner. And my prayer is that in 50 years from now, you won't be able to recognize the man that I am today because I'll look so much more like Jesus Christ because he's been leading me to godliness. He leads us to godliness. Next thing I think Paul wants us to understand is he wants Titus to be convinced of some things. He wants Titus to be convinced of some things. Look at verse 2. He says, The truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, that God who cannot lie promised before time began. Paul says that he wants Titus to be living in the hope of eternal life. Let me ask you this. What are you living for? What are you living for? Are you living for now or are you living for then? 
Are you living in the hope of eternal life? Because I imagine if I were to open your calendars and your pocketbooks and I were to take a look at those, and and myself included, there there are a number of times when I were to look at my calendar and the things that fill my day, there is no evidence there that I'm living for a then. What are you living for? Paul is writing this. This is a man who said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I went to dinner parties with the Sadducees, the most popular kids in town, and and, and, and I've given all that up to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not living for the now. If I was living for the now, I would still be in that old way of life. I'm living in the reality that a then is coming. Now, we read that word hope, and most of us think, well, what is this? Are we playing the lottery? Are we shooting dice here? And I hope it comes out my way? No. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's a guarantee. It's not like being in high school, oh, I, I hope the head cheerleader will say yes to homecoming. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, and then, oh, no, I didn't get the date. It's not like that. It's a guarantee. It is a blessed assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. The promises of God are not probabilities. They're promises. Let me ask you guys this morning, has anyone told you that you're crazy? Do you understand that you're crazy? It's Sunday in June. What are you doing in an elementary school? It's Sunday in June, and you're sitting in an elementary school. You're nuts. Some of you are so crazy that that in a little while, you're going to take out your wallets and your checkbooks, and you're actually going to give money back to God. You're crazy. But in reality, you're not crazy, because you're living for then. You're not living for now. Every single day, we should wake up and say, God, what is it you have for me? Lord, show me how I can live for the then and not for the now. Show me how I can live in light of then. When we think about God's promises, and the thing about a promise is that a promise is only as good as the character of the person who makes it. Think about this. Who would you rather hear a war story from? Abraham Lincoln or Brian Williams? Some of you guys are going to get that. Seriously, who would you rather hear the story from? A promise is only as good as the character of the one who makes it. Let's look at what Paul has to say about the character of God. He says, in the hope of eternal life, that God, who what? Who cannot lie. God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God cannot lie. He is incapable of lying. And and think about this. Back in the Garden of Eden, God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, whatever you do, don't eat from this tree, for on the day you eat of it, you'll die. Now, he doesn't tell them why. He just tells them what the consequence will be. What's he doing? Why wouldn't he tell them why? He's just saying, Adam, Eve, do you trust me? Do you trust that I know what is good for you? Trust me, don't eat from that tree. Do you trust me? And he says the same thing to us. Over and over again in my life, I read, it's better to give than to receive. And I think, oh, I don't know. But I trust him. And so I do. I read in Hebrews 13 that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And I trust him because I know his character and I know that God cannot lie and he promises the hope of eternity. He promises the hope of eternity. Next thing that he wants us to see is that we are called. Number four, we are called. Paul says this in verse three. He says, in his own time, he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. 
Paul says, I've been entrusted with a message. I've been called by God. I'm entrusted. And when you think about being entrusted with something, I think the best illustration of this is a valet service, right? You go to a nice restaurant for dinner. You take your wife out. Your husband takes you out. You pull up to the valet. You hand him your keys. Now, when you get that car back, what kind of condition do you expect it to be in? You want it in as, at least as good a condition as you gave it to them, right? If they want to vacuum out the floorboards, get the Cheerios off the back of the minivan, that's great. But you want it at least as good. It better not come back with any additional scratches or any wear and tear. And Paul says, I've been entrusted with a message. And someday I'm going to have to stand before God and hand him back the keys and give an account for what I've done with that message. As followers of Jesus Christ, you too have been commissioned You've been given, you've been entrusted with a message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And someday you will stand before God and give an account with what you've done because you have been called. And I love what Paul says here. It's not out of convenience. It's not out of convenience. He says, I've been entrusted with, uh, with the gospel by the what? By the command. It's not like Paul looked down, or God looked down at Paul and said, um, hey, Paul, if you're not too busy, I'd love if you do this. No, it's by the command of God. God says, go. And Paul says, you're God. I'm the slave. Yes, I will obey. I will go. I give you my radical, rigorous obedience to follow you. I give my radical, rigorous obedience to follow you. He's compelled by God out of command. I love it. I love it. The last thing that we see is Paul's going to commend two things to Titus. He says, Titus, my true son in our common faith. And then he says two words. What are the two words that he commends? Say it with me. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He says, Titus, my true son. Uh, To me, this is an indication that Paul is the one who led Titus to faith. And as he's writing these words, I think Paul is looking back on that day when he led Titus to faith as a father or a grandfather looks back on sweet memories of their own children. If you've ever had the experience of leading someone to faith, you know what that's like. You know how sweet and awesome that day is to be there with that person to celebrate that they now have the hope of eternal life. And I think Paul's reflecting on that. And he says, Titus, remember that day that you experienced God's grace and the peace that it brings. That's what I want for you in this church. I want this church on the island called Crete to be full of God's grace and peace. When you experience God's grace, receiving the gospel, you know his peace. You have peace. That word peace in the original language is the word irene, and it's actually an orthopedic term. It's used to describe something that's out of joint being put back into place. Now, if you've ever had something come out of joint, a shoulder, an elbow, knee, if you've ever had anything that's been disjointed, you know the pain and the discomfort that you feel. And you know what that's like, and you know that the the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not exactly flowing through you in those moments. You know how much it hurts. And you know that moment that the doctor grabs your arm, and he's getting ready to set the joint back in place, how painful that is, but the moment it pops back into place, there's immediate relief. There's immediate relief, and there's peace. And the same is true when we're confronted with our own sin. The reality of our own sinfulness and the reality that because of our sin, we're eternally separated from God. There is a great pain that overcomes us. But the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ, 
It's like the joint is put back into place and we receive his peace. We receive his peace. Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, I I want you and everyone in this church to be full of grace and peace so that the world around you would see your good works. They would have goodwill towards you that they might hear and respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I was in seminary, I was up in Boston, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. Um, Man and I didn't have a bunch of money, so we would often drive into the city. We'd drive into Boston, pay our $40 to park somewhere, uh, and then we would walk around the city. We, We loved to do the Freedom Trail. Um, me, mainly because I love history, but also because at the end of the Freedom Trail, there is a place where you can get roasted nuts, and I love roasted nuts. So this was kind of our thing that we would do. And along the Freedom Trail, there's actually there's a number of churches that were significant to uh, the War for Independence. And one of the first ones is the Old South Meeting House that you're going to see a picture of here. This is the Old South Meeting House. This is where the Boston Tea Party actually began. And this was uh, the Old South Church as it once was. Uh, You can see the inside and how beautiful it is. Uh, It's just amazing to walk through there. And the other one is King's Chapel. King's Chapel was the first Anglican church built in the Americas. These churches were built in the 1720s. They're beautiful structures, and they were once thriving churches that were built by people who came to America with, with the desire to be a community that loved Jesus Christ and showed his grace and peace to the world around them. But now, they're little more than a museum. You walk through, pay your $5, look at the stained glass, and that's it. Grace and peace are no longer flowing through those. We're coming up at River Rock Bible Church on our third anniversary. I'm in for another 97 years. Anybody with me? 97 years? I would hate for 97 years from now someone to walk through this place as if they'd walk through a school cafeteria, but (laughs) someone to to pay their $5 and walk through a building that once had the name River Rock Bible Church attached to it and pay their $5 just to look at stained glass. My prayer is that after 100 years that somewhere there's a group of people meeting under the name of River Rock Bible Church and they are full of grace and peace and they are active and vibrant within the community, demonstrating their good works, proclaiming the good news, seeing people put their trust in Jesus Christ over and over and over again. My prayer for us this morning is that we would be full of grace and peace, understanding that we are sent slaves who've been chosen by God, that he's called us. We have a mission to accomplish together that we would understand that the good news of the gospel travels on the back of our good works. And it's our calling, it's our job to bring grace and peace to the world by introducing people to Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful that you fill us with grace and peace, that, that it is by your grace that we are saved. Lord, while we don't fully comprehend or, or even pretend to understand how, how our uh, our decision to trust you and your free and, and your sovereignty work together, Lord, we trust that it does. Lord, we are here this morning and, and we pray that if there's anyone who has yet to put their trust in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they understand that before the foundation of the earth, you said, I choose 
this one. I choose you. And that they would respond in faith and say, I believe that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for my sins. And I'm trusting in his grace that I may experience peace. Lord, we pray that tomorrow morning when we wake up, it wouldn't be Monday. It would be Monday. And we would go and and enter your world as those who have received a commissioning by the king. Lord, let us be filled with your grace and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at the bottom of your bulletin, you'll see that there's a space there that says take two. Take two is a time for us to just reflect on what God is saying to us and then to respond by writing down what we're going to do about what God said to us this morning. What was it that God said to you this morning? Perhaps you read something in your Bible before you even got to River Rock this morning and you heard God say, I want you to do this. I want you to change this. I want you to start doing this. Write that down and then write down what you're going to do about it this week. Maybe it was through the message. Maybe God brought someone's name to mind and you said, you know what? There's someone in my neighborhood that I need to go and show some good works toward that they could, they could have goodwill towards me and hear the good news of the gospel. Maybe it's you yourself that's here this morning saying, you know what, I've, I've never put my trust in Jesus Christ. I don't have the hope of eternal life that Paul talked about, but I want it. And, and, and my step today is that I'm going I'm to talk to one of the elders, I'm going to talk to the pastor, and I'm going to try to understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever your step is today, whatever it is God is saying to you, write that down and write down what you'll do about it. Let's take two.